Hello, welcome back to our journey through Rabbi Sachs' book, Morality. We are up to chapter three on social media. And then we'll conclude our talk today with some brief comments about the Parsha Vayehi from Rabbi Sachs' other book, Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas. So let's begin. So we all recognize the value social media has brought to our lives and how it's changed our lives. And there's no doubt there is benefit Social media certainly is an enhanced community. It allows us to communicate to folks we might not otherwise so easily or more regularly talk with normally. And it's a great opportunity to provide education. It's a great platform to distribute content. But there's real problems. There was a book written in 2017 called iGen. And it's subtitled, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. And in the book, the author talks about how life satisfaction among American teenagers was relatively stable until 2012 and then began to plummet. For example, 46% more 15 to 19 year olds committed suicide in 2015 than 2007. And there was a 250% increase in the number of kids between 12 and 14 who killed themselves. Now, what was unique about 2012? The author argues in her book that this was when iGen, or Generation Z, which is children born in or after 1995, were in their teens. And they were the first generation to grow up with both smartphones and social media as part of their taken-for-granted environment. And I could speak personally from my work in the emergency department, the increase we've seen in young people And oftentimes the common thread is some association with social media, whether it's bullying, breakups being done over social media, seeing something over social media that upset them, a lack of true relationships and a lot of superficiality through a larger number, but less less depth in their relationships over social media. There's no doubt that the way young people interact have dramatically changed. Now, in the United States, people are averaging between seven and nine hours a day on some sort of screen, whether it's smartphones, the internet, or electric gaming. And that's robbing them of social time. In 2015, Sherry Turkle reported that the average American adult checks their phone every six and a half minutes. And a quarter of American teenagers are connected to a device within five minutes of waking up. And the psychological effects of this are disturbing. Children that compare themselves with the profiles of their friends on social media. Now, comparing is one of the most deeply rooted of all human instincts. And there's a phenomenon called FOMO, or fear of missing out. Back before, when you didn't know what other people were doing, you didn't think to compare your own life to them. But now that people are curating their lives in self-selected posts, there's a fear of missing out, as you see on your vacation what you're doing, And what other people are doing on their vacation and comparing yourself to their experiences. Everything has become the presentation of self and the selfie. And social media is really inviting a world of advertisements for myself. And a competition for attention between likes or views or followers that few can actually win. And there's studies on this, medical studies that have looked at how this affects brain chemistry. The Radiological Society of North America in 2018 reported that young people addicted to smartphone use 
showed chemical imbalances in the brain. And there was another study in the Journal of of the Association for Consumer Research that showed that just the mere presence of smartphones, even when switched off, reduced cognitive capacity. Essentially, we become so attentive to our phones that we have difficulty concentrating on anything else. And the sheer pressure of information in this digital age is clearly having effect on diminishing our attention spans. I have three children, and I'll say the as they've grown, grown older and been more exposed to social media, the ability for them to get focused on reading a book is more difficult. And just their impatience, if a story can't be told in five minutes, it can't be told at all. And I think there's clear that the the purveyors of social media, their job is constantly to distract and keep people's mind focused on consuming the material online through rapid visuals and uh, exciting material that trying to keep the user engaged. And it really takes away from efforts at developing contemplative thought. Now, excessive use of social media has been linked to depression and stress-related symptoms such as eating disorders and drug and alcohol abuse. And this has been most, uh, prevalent, excuse me, most prevalent in teenage girls. There was a study done in England where 38% of 14-year-old girls who spent more than five hours a day online felt miserable, tired, restless, worthless, or tearful. And as teenager behaviors change through adopting social media, they're adopting habits which are clearly not healthy. They prefer to communicate by text rather than in person because it's perceived as being less stressful. The result is they're showing a decline in empathy and social skills. They're having more difficulty in maintaining eye contact or undivided attention. And people even break up relationships over text. And it, sh- it really uh, is a reflection of a-, a shallower perspective of how we treat each other. What's interesting is if you look at the people who created this world, they're the ones that are most concerned about its deleterious effects. Bill Gates described that he wouldn't allow his children any more than 45 minutes of screen time on the weekdays and an hour on weekends. And the founder of Snapchat limited his children to 90 minutes of screen time per week. Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook has also uh, brought up similar concerns. And this is ironic that the people who develop this stuff are most sensitive to the risks it poses their own children. So not only does it cause physical and mental health, it's addictive, it can cause depression, shorter attention spans, damages the capacity for sustained and focused thought, but most fundamentally, it leaves us morally undeveloped or underdeveloped. We're addicted to a search for popularity that's not based on character, virtue, or anything else. And that's really the worst possible training for resilience or happiness in the real world of real people and real relationships. Because true communication involves personal presence. Even what we would call idle chit-chat has a value. Communication is not just exchange of information. It's the medium of a relationship. And the counterpoint of listening and speaking is at the heart of what it means to be a person. And it helps establish a moral rather than instrumental relationship. 
And this is, again, I think the Jewish concept of speech being so important in our practice. Because it's what differentiates us from the animal kingdom. If you look at friendship, and I'll speak for myself, I probably have hundreds of Facebook friends, and very few of those are, are people I would really call in a time of need. And a study showed that in England, the average person had 554 friends online, but only five true and close friends. And to have a real friendship, it requires an investment of time, intimacy, and a degree of privacy. And that's just not the environment you see online. So going to how this becomes a moral issue, morality is born when you focus on you, not me. Okay? So speaking in the first person here, I learned this by being present to you and allowing you to be present to me. We, that's how we develop empathy and sympathy. And morality is about engaging with the raw human vulnerabilities of others that lie beneath the careful, burnished image and about our ability to heal some of the pain. I learned to be moral when I developed the capacity to put myself in your place. And that's a skill you can only learn through face-to-face interactions. It's lost in electronic exchange. There's two famous Jewish thinkers that discuss this. Martin Buber, he famously talked about the I-it relationship and the I-thou. The I-it relationship, we see the object of experience as something to be analyzed, classified, and quantified. To what use can I put this object in front of me? He called this experience. It's a very transactional approach to life. And the other relationship, the the more moral of the two, is the I-thou relationship. He called the encounter. Between us, there is relationship. What really matters is the encounter with another thou. The supreme example of this is what we call love. Now, Emmanuel Levinas believed that moral obligation is born the moment when we encounter what he called, quote, the face of the other. The basic act of recognition, which takes place when we make eye contact with another human being, and we establish a duty to them because they're a person. To be fully human, we need direct encounters with people. And again, going back to what we've found before, the whole idea of communal prayer and minion about the requirement to come together face-to-face, acknowledging each other's existence and dignity, and how that relationship creates the delicate back and forth of speaking and listening. This is how we become moral beings. And we have to remember that while there's benefits of social media, the unsocial aspect of social media can't be a replacement to -to face-to-face relationships. So with this, we're going to transition to this week's Parsha. And in this week's Parsha Vayehi, Rabbi Sachs talks, the, the, the topic of the essay is what it takes to forgive. What we have here, we're, we're, let's recatch where we're at in the, in, the Parsha, in, the, in the Torah. We're at the third episode of the, of the trilogy of the story of Joseph. And what's described here is really the first recorded act in human history of forgiveness. 
Now, the idea of forgiveness is a uniquely Jewish aspect. There's always been a key distinction between forgiveness in the Jewish tradition and the appeasement of anger, which is a more universal aspect of humanity. People are always harming each other and people become angry, indignant, or disrespected. And if the offender does nothing to turn away their wrath, it can lead to an endless cycle of revenge. You can think of the Montagues and Capulets and Romeo and Juliet, or for film fans uh, who enjoyed the Godfather movies, the Corleones and Tataglias. And it's an endless cycle of revenge where, in, for sake of family honor, there's a back and forth. Now, the ancient Greeks used concepts such as pardons, appeasements, or willingness to make allowances or accept an excuse or grant an indulgence as ways of overcoming this endless cycle of violence. And what happens is the victim forgoes revenge, but the offender doesn't atone. He, he or she makes a plea for mitigation. And actually, if you look at Jacob and his interaction with Esau, this really isn't a reflection of forgiveness. This is more of that atonement, uh, appeasement, sorry, not atonement, more of a partner appeasement. If you look how Jacob approaches Esau, he gives gifts. He, he abases himself by bowing down seven times, calling Esau, my Lord, and describing himself as your servant. And through his act, Esau forgets about the past. Now you can make an argument that maybe Jacob doesn't have anything to really apologize for because he rightfully earned the, the birthright from Esau. But regardless, the whole encounter is not a effort of forgiveness. It's appeasement. What Joseph does with his brothers is very different. First off, he doesn't reveal himself. And when Joseph's, when Joseph's brothers are discussing among themselves after Jacob dies, their concern that despite meeting Joseph already, that Joseph is going to take revenge on them. Okay? So what does Joseph first say to them? He says in Genesis 45, verse 5, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Okay. So he says that. But after that, the brothers, what do they say? They go back and tell him after Jacob dies that they concoct a story that this is what Jacob said. Please forgive your brothers wrong and the sin they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. This is in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 17. So there's not a forgiveness there. Joseph says something. The brothers are worried that he's going to take revenge and they try to um, let him appease him and say, listen, honor your father's wishes. But here's where things get interesting from the forgiveness model. Joseph's response. He says, quote, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now this is forgiveness. 
he's not using the word forgiveness, but he makes it clear that he forgoes all thoughts of revenge. Now, how did we get to this point? Well, first off, Joseph engages in an elaborate plan, right? He hides his identity and he, he assesses whether his brothers are capable of remorse and atonement. And he overhears them when they're speaking. They don't know Joseph is speaking. He understands Hebrew. And they, the brothers say in chapter 42, verse 21, Surely we are guilty because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So when, they, when they're in trouble in Egypt, they're acknowledging that they've done wrong. They're acknowledging their own guilt. And then Joseph arranges a trial that's testing whether Judah, who was actually the brother who proposed selling him into slavery, is a changed person. And he has Benjamin brought in as a, brought, held under a false charge. And Judah's pleading to take himself in place of Benjamin. So he's seeing that Judah's not going to act the same way he did previously. So it's not just a change in the brothers, however, there's also a change in Joseph. Because as we mentioned, as we see previously in, in Parsha by Yagash, Joseph reframed his life. The, the entire story of his, of his relationship with his brothers is now a drama of divine providence. And it's not Joseph as the victim. And from a larger scale, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the difference in Judaism as a morality of guilt rather than a rather than the idea of shame, okay? And Judaism is a guilt culture over a shame culture. So with shame cultures, wrongdoing is like a stain on the person. And the only way to be rehabilitated is somehow to have the stain covered up. And you do this by placating the victim. Uh, And hopefully they're going to turn a blind eye. And their resentment, indignation, desire for revenge is going to be appeased. In guilt cultures, it's very different. It's not that the person was bad or stained. It was that the act was wrong. And this is what makes forgiveness possible. Because you can admit you're wrong, express remorse, and make amends. And distance yourself from the deed. And through forgiveness, the person giving forgiveness can reaffirm your worth as a person despite the fact that everyone on both sides knows that the act was wrong. And again, as Rabbi Sachs does so often, he compares Judaism with ancient Greece and pre-Christian Rome as a, uh, the, the guilt culture of the past and the, the, the I'm sorry, the, the shame culture of the past and the guilt culture associated with Judaism. Now, in the West, contemporary culture by secularists often feel that their culture is morally superior to the ethics of the Hebrew Bible. And there certainly is a lot in the Hebrew Bible which, without an understanding of the sources and the interpretation, doesn't seem modern. But if you look at what's happening in society currently, we've reverted to much more of a shame culture. And again, talking about what I mentioned earlier about social media, nowhere is this more reflective than in social media, cancel culture, where people are being ostracized. Um, there's a permanent stain on your record when you post something or when something bad happens to you. It can be captured electronically and you can Google search yourself and it can never go away. In fact, there's firms 
that are hired as reputation specialists which scrub the internet for any negative news about a person. So this is really a, a modern day reestablishment of the shame culture of the past. So I want to end with reading Rabbi, Word, Rabbi Sachs' words himself. He mentions that in a shame culture, the main thing to do is not to be found out. Because once you are, there is no way back. There's no place in such culture for forgiveness. At best, you appease. As in ancient Greece, the culprit argues, I couldn't help it. It wasn't that bad. It's human nature. I was carried away. They undergo some ritual of self-abasement. Eventually, they hope people will forgive. Not that they'll forgive, but instead they'll forget. And it's an ugly kind of culture. With Judaism, there's an eternal alternative. What matters is not outward appearances, but the inner voice. When we do wrong, as all of us do, there's a way forward to confess, express remorse, atone, make amends, and like Judah, change. To know that however wrong our deeds, as we say every morning, quote, the soul you gave me is pure. And that if we work hard enough on, on ourselves, we can be forgiven. That's to inhabit a culture of grace and hope. And that's a life-changing idea. So what I'll leave you with is Rabbi Sachs' life-changing idea from this week's Parsha. Judaism allows us to inhabit a culture of grace and hope. If we work hard enough on ourselves, we can be forgiven. So I hope everyone has a great week and look forward to sharing more ideas next week. Take care.